with a great reverence and fear and humility that I sing that song and then have to stand up in front of you and be the one to speak the oracles of God to you and pray that it would build this church by the power of God's Word. Such an honor to have that opportunity, to have this privilege. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we are weak. We are tiny. We are nothing without Your Spirit among us. We have Your Word and Your Spirit and anything can happen when You are present, when Your power makes the Word come to life for us. So I pray that would happen now. And God, I pray that we would seek Jesus, our risen King, and that as we gaze upon Him, we would be drawn to Him to become like Him and our hearts would feel a draw to surrender every area of our lives to Him. Our families to our King. Surrender our jobs, our career dreams to our King. Surrender all of our relationships, our hopes and dreams to Him who rules over us with His love. Amen. I know many of you are really excited about the change from summer into fall. My wife loves this season because she gets to wear sweatshirts all the time when the weather gets colder. So just over a week ago, we officially changed from this season of summer to fall, and the days are getting shorter, and the leaves are starting to change. These out here are still kind of green, but around our house, they're falling off and changing colors. And except for a strange uh, week of summertime-like temperatures, we have had some nice cool weather over the last week. So as much as we enjoy the sweetness of summer, time goes on and brings new blessings with every season of life. And along with the changing seasons of our weather patterns, Redemption City Church is experiencing some changing seasons as well. We just recently moved here a couple weeks ago to start worshiping Sunday mornings, and now we are adding new things to our our worship, more communion, more songs, more ordinance or uh, offerings and benedictions and scripture readings and prayers. So it was a sweet time at Christ or at uh, community. What is it called? Presbyterian. Yeah, I forgot their name. I've already put that season into the past. <laughs> but uh, now we we move forward into this new season, anticipating some wonderful blessings. From God, And what I'm most excited about in this new season is transitioning from one book of the Bible that we just finished up last week, the book of Ephesians. We spent eight months in Ephesians, and now we get to spend, who knows how long it's going to take to get through 28 chapters of Matthew, but another year or so in the, the book of Matthew. I'm really excited. Jake and I are just giddy about preaching the book of Matthew. We uh, go from a book... The book of Ephesians, which talks about our life in Christ, our new identity in Christ, this wonderful work of salvation that God has wrought from before the foundations of the earth right now into our present time. And He gives us a new identity in Christ. But we move into the Gospel of Matthew, and now we get to just gaze upon the identity of our King, our Savior. 
This book is so full of opportunities for us to reach out into all other parts of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, as Matthew is filled with Old Testament references. It provides for us weekly opportunities to exalt Christ plainly, clearly, that we would become like Him. And it calls for us to long for our King to soon return and finish the work that He began in His first coming. So we begin this journey by diving into, I'm sure, what most of you think is probably the most exciting part of the entire book of Matthew, the first 17 verses. So Matthew uses this introduction to show us what the rest of the book is going to be all about. This introduction shows Jesus through the various seasons of Israel's life, the whole nation of Israel, transitioning from one season to another and setting up a new season of God's exciting plan of redemption. So listen carefully to this riveting introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Hezekiah, or of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This genealogy is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, what an exciting way to start a story, right? As everything you would want in a riveting, dramatic life account. Dynamic characters everywhere. A climax. A desperate conflict. And a hero who brings hope for resolution. It's all right there in these 17 verses. Now, you might think I'm exaggerating exaggerating a little just for humor's sake. 
Because most people read genealogies really quickly, and they think, what's the point of these? Why are they even in the Bible? Is this necessary? I'm sure more than one of you has endeavored to read the entire Bible in a year. And everything's going along great until you get to some genealogy in Genesis or in Numbers or in Chronicles. And you're really tempted to quit. There goes your reading plan. I can't get through this. Or you start to debate with yourself in your mind, can I really say I've read the entire Bible if I skip over these sections? But I'm not kidding when I say that this list has everything we need to know about the, the exciting parts of this book that Matthew writes for us. It's all here. It's how Matthew has decided to introduce the entire book. And the main point of this section is the main point of Matthew's entire Gospel. That Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish King for all peoples. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who would redeem His people, people from all nations. So now you wonder, is he really going to preach through every one of those names? Connect everyone to the Old Testament? That would be an awesome sermon that uh, would take a few days to get through. So I assure you that's not going to happen. First, we'll just take a look generally at the broad overview of what this genealogy is all about. What is Matthew trying to show us? So this genealogy will emphasize that both that Jesus is the king that all history pointed to, but it also shows us God's love for all peoples. And then after we get through that, we'll just take a look at the broad themes and structure of the entire book of Matthew to give you a guide for where we're going over the next year or so. So let's take a look at how these 17 verses set us up for Matthew's dramatic gospel account. How many of you would start the story of your life. If someone said, tell me about yourself, where are you from? You would start with your great, 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 many greats backwards grandparents. That is just not how we tell stories these days. So we might not, but that's what Jews did. Jews love this stuff because ancestry was everything to Israel. Being a child of Abraham defined your entire identity. So we just talked about our new identity in Christ from the book of Ephesians. Well, this genealogy is all about identity. Tracing history through a genealogy was a reminder of all of God's promises. Nancy Guthrie says, Tracing lines of descendants keeps us focused on the most important people, person in the Bible. Genealogies help us focus on where history is headed. So God promised in Genesis to Eve that one day one of her sons would come along and crush the head of the serpent that deceived her. And then later on, God promised Abraham that one day one of his sons would come along and be a blessing to every nation of the earth. And then later on, God promised David that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever ruling over all people. So genealogies connected all those things. Jews traced their ancestry closely because they were desperate for God to keep these very promises. They would ask the question, who is this Messiah going to be? Where would this king come from? And for over 400 years before Jesus came, 
there was silence regarding these questions. No prophet came for 400 years to give them some hope that the Messiah would soon be here. And then Matthew writes this account of the life of Jesus to spread the news all over the world that He finally has come. And he writes a genealogy in order to pick them up, remind them where they have come from, remind them of God's promises, and show them that God has gloriously answered all of their questions. Genealogies are important to us because they connect every single Jew, every single Israelite, to the promises of God to restore right order to this world. But it's not just a list of names that tells us where Jesus has come from. It gives us a clue into Jesus' identity, who he is, what kind of king he is. So Matthew carefully crafted this list in order to show us that Jesus isn't just another king in a long line of kings, but the king to whom all history points. He says in verse 1, His main point that he's trying to get across is that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, not just his great, their great grandkid, but the one who fulfills all these promises. So let's look what he's doing here. First, we see that this list is dripping with royalty from David on down to Jeconiah. That's just a list of the kings that ruled over Israel. And you see, The only time a title is put into this entire thing other than a title for Jesus, the Christ, is the title given to David at the high point of Israel's existence, the greatest time in the empire of Israel. David was the king. So we see this is a king, kingly, royal lineage. Which emphasizes Jesus' identity as a son of the king. But in hindsight, both us and Matthew can see that David couldn't possibly have been the promised one to come along and fulfill the promises to Abraham and fulfill the promise to Eve. The king had finally arrived. David was there and everything seemed to be going great. But then his life fell apart. He committed atrocious sins and he lost his influence And then the generations of kings after him just spirals downward until we get finally to a point where they have completely rebelled against God and God abandons them into exile into Babylon. There in verse 11. So we see this history of Israel given a promise to Abraham and it seems to be fulfilled in David and then it comes crashing down and all is lost. In Jeremiah 22, verse 30, God curses the line of the kings. Right before He sends them into exile, He says, Jeconiah, you have behaved so wickedly that no son of yours will ever sit on the throne. And we can see in that line that after that, Israel had no legitimate king. Foreign nations ruled over Israel from that time on. Suddenly, all of Israel is thrown into despair. What about the promise to David that one of his sons would rule on the throne forever? Did God just go back on His promise? The people are surrounded with doubt. Darkness everywhere. 
I thought we were following a faithful God and now he just cursed every hope we had. But by God's grace, the lineage goes on. Some people apparently still had enough hope that God would keep his promises. They didn't understand how, but they just kept tracing the lineage. They followed Jeconiah's sons on down and realized until we get to a man, a special man, who can trace his lineage all the way back to David, all the way back to Abraham. The royal line is still intact. And then we can go to the book of Luke and see the genealogy there and see how this king in the royal line can still sit on the throne as a son of David and get around the curse of his great-grandfather Jeconiah. It's God does keep His promises, even though sometimes in our darkness it is difficult for us to see it. But even though we still might be surrounded by darkness, I'm not so blind to see that apparently Matthew doesn't know how to count. Notice in verse 17, Matthew, Matthew says this really strange thing about the number 14. He says there's 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the exile and 14 generations from the exile to Christ. But if you go into Genesis or Chronicles and count the actual fathers and sons, there's a lot more than 14. So does, is Matthew bad at math? Or is Matthew just really ignorant of his history? It seems that Matthew is making a stylistic decision in order to tell, to bring about this truth about Jesus the King in more ways than just telling where he came from, but to give this whole genealogy a feel of royalty. Jews love to tell stories in interesting ways, as we've already seen introducing with the genealogy. But they also love telling stories with numbers. They're fascinated with numbers. And I'm a little nervous to even say this because we just talked about the clarity of Scripture. So I don't want us to say, oh, you've got to go digging into all the numbers to find the real secrets of Scripture. It's plain. But to Jews, they love numbers. So they would write stories with all kinds of numbers that had symbolic significance. So you go to the book of Revelation, and there's numbers everywhere in the book of Revelation. Not to tell you that this many years until this thing happens and that many people are going to be in that thing. But to, because Jews knew some, that there was a certain feel that came with different numbers. And every name had its own number. If you add up the place of each letter in the name in order of the Hebrew alphabet. So the number of the name of the greatest king in Israel's history, King David, was the number 14. Those three letters that make up his name add up to 14. So this is just another way for Matthew to say, This is all about David's son. This is all about the king that we had hoped for. All about the king that God promised would sit on the throne forever. And you get to the end of the lineage and you see Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne as the only true son of David. Jesus is the king they've been waiting for for centuries. He's the seed of Abraham who will sit on the throne and bless all nations. And so we see that Matthew is 
main emphasis throughout this whole book is to get you to see Jesus, the King. To get you to want to surrender your life to His authority. He is the far better David. But there's more for us to understand from this list of names before He lets us get into the story. And a really helpful way to see these things is to look at the anomalies in the list. These little changes in the pattern of the father of, the father of, the father of. You should get into that routine and feel like you're going nowhere and then you're, you're stopped suddenly by, oh, why did he insert that? Why did he put that name in there? Why did he put that title in there? Then you get asking questions that really lead you into hope. So you can see in verses 2 and 11, at significant points, beginning points in Israel's history, we have this little phrase, and his brothers. Now why would Matthew insert that phrase, and his brothers, just for Judah and Jeconiah? All the other guys on the list had brothers too. Why did these guys get mentioned? Well, we see that both of these guys are coming at significant periods of exile in Israel's history. So Judah was exiled, and his brothers were exiled in Egypt. And God brought them out at that stage into the promised land. And then we see in Jeconiah, too, that he and his brothers were exiled in Babylon, and then God brings them back into the promised land after their exile. So the implication is that Matthew is about to tell us a story of another return from exile. Jesus is going to bring his brothers out of exile into the promised land that God has prepared for us. And we see later on in the book of Matthew who Jesus' brothers are. Jesus' brothers are those who do the will of God. In Christ, we all become children of Abraham. This is our lineage. This is our ancestry. We are grafted in to the family of God, to the family of Abraham. Now, what kind of people get to be in this family? This royal family, a line of kings. The list of names here is no list of virtuous people. These are some of the most wicked people in Israel's history. But there's also some hope for us here. Again, look at where Matthew breaks the pattern. At verses 3 and verse 5, or verses, yeah, 3 and 5. He gives specific mention to some certain women who it would be crazy to include in a list of the the greatest king in Israel's history. These are women who may have some shady pasts. Why would you bring them in? Tamar and Rahab. Gentiles. Are you kidding me? The most Jewish person in all of history has Gentiles in his past? Tamar and Rahab were prostitutes giving their bodies for pay. Ruth, she too was a Gentile, a poor widowed Gentile, had no land, had no inheritance, had no hope or promises attached to her. And she is brought in to the family of God. Bathsheba is mentioned here too as Uriah's wife. Though she was taken advantage of by King David, she is given prominence in the Messiah's lineage. Even Mary in verse 16. Mary had this cloud of immorality around her, but she is the one given credit for bringing Jesus into the world. Joseph is kind of just 
His name is given out there. He's the son of Judah, I think. And then we quickly go on to Mary. Just to make sure we're connected through Joseph, but let's focus on this wonderful woman, Mary. So Matthew includes all of these women to say, these are the people for whom this king has come. These are the types of people he is redeeming and making prominent in his kingdom. Those that the world thinks are unimportant. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker? I've seen a couple around town here that say, well-behaved women rarely make history. That just bothers me. It's like, why is making history so important to you? And I come here to this genealogy and I see that Matthew tells us that humble, broken women who trust in the promises of God fulfilled in our King Jesus, they make the most important side of history. Those who come to Him in their brokenness are the ones that matter to the King who makes history Himself. Even Uriah, Uriah, this guy who was just taken advantage of, his wife stolen from him by the greatest king in history before Jesus. He gets mentioned in this lineage. The king steals his wife and has him murdered. But when we get to the Savior, the Messiah, the king who rules even over David, Uriah gets a place right next to David who stole his wife and had him killed. This should be an encouragement to every single one of us that no matter what sins we have committed or sins have been committed against us, we are precious in the sight of God and we belong in His family tree of the King. And so we can see that this genealogy is not just an empty list of names, but a vital part of the entire Bible that really reminds us that the Bible is not all about us. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every page is dripping with His authority, with His royalty. And we are commanded to surrender to Him. Our King, though, doesn't leave us alone and lost in this brokenness. He rules in order to free us from the darkness. And that's the theme of the entire book. Matthew is going to show us what kind of King what kind of authority He has, and how He uses it in our favor. He'll use many Old Testament references to show us that He is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament promises. He is the Son of God who is more faithful than Israel, the rebellious Son of God. He's going to show us through many narratives that Jesus has authority over nature, over demons, over sickness, over all people. Every step of the way, we're going to see that Jesus is the King who fulfills all the Old Testament. Even some of Matthew's favorite titles, you're going to see repeated over and over in the book of Matthew. Son of God, Son of David, Lord. Each one giving a unique perspective, emphasizing Jesus is King and we should all, or we all owe Him our allegiance. Even the way that Matthew structures his entire book emphasizes Jesus as the true King of Israel. Most commentators agree, though there's some variation, that that Matthew is broken up into five major sections based on five discourses that Jesus gives. So he, like on the Sermon on the Mount, he has an extended time of just teaching. And then it's followed by a narrative where he goes out and acts 
out. He lives out what he just taught on. And there's five of those sections. Discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative. And each one of those sections climaxes in a declaration that he is the Son of God. Again, emphasizing he's the one that has right authority over all things. And I especially love the way that Matthew tells this story. He builds these five sections in such a way as to lead us through the history of Israel all over again, but this time with Jesus cast as the main character, not Israel. Jesus as the faithful son instead of Israel, the disobedient son. So you'll see right at the beginning, Jesus is born and he's exiled into Egypt. And he returns from Egypt and in his baptism, he comes through the waters and right after that, he's sent out into the wilderness where he's tempted just like Israel. But he is faithful through his temptation. And after the wilderness wandering, he ends up on a mountain where he expounds on the law of God just like in the story of Israel. And then his prophetic boldness similarly gains him quite a following. His nation appears to be growing, and it climaxes in this bold proclamation that he is the rightful heir to the throne. But this is a turning point where he is rejected, and everything spirals out of control, it seems, until the point where he is abandoned to by God, exiled to the grave, after he's killed on the cross. But God's promises are still faithful, and he brings his son back and gives him all authority in order to lead his brothers out of this exile in this world into the promised land of a new heaven and new earth. So this genealogy that Matthew begins with brings Israel's history fresh into our minds so that we know What story is being told? And ultimately to show that Jesus is the one who fulfills every single moment of history. He is the faithful Israel. The trajectory showed how Israel failed, but Matthew recasts it with Jesus as the faithful Son of God. Jesus is the one who has all authority to sit on the throne. He's the one who will bless all nations of the earth. He is the one who will finally crush the head of the serpent. I'm so excited to preach on these things. And we'll just have to wait for the next year as we go through it slowly, step by step, and see how wonderful of a king Jesus is. But as we go forward, there's something that we need to fight to remember every single week. I want you to keep this in mind as we look to this account of Jesus' life and His ministry, His death and His resurrection. We've seen that this whole book is all about Jesus being the King. He's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah for all peoples of the earth. And yet we need to remember, tell ourselves every week that this book is not about us. Really, the entire Bible is not about us. It's about Jesus. We're not coming to the book, the Gospel of Matthew, to say, where can I find a good moral example for how I should live my life? Or go to his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, and say, oh, here's some good moral instruction for how I am supposed to live. You can get those things, and many people do, but the whole point that Matthew is trying to get across is that Jesus is the King, not just a great moral teacher, not just a moral example, but the King to whom we are all to surrender our lives to. 
We should read this account and feel a, a calling to submit every area of our lives to Jesus. We hope that as we proclaim Jesus and lift Him up, that your heart would be led to a glad surrender, a joyful submission, because Jesus is a King unlike any other King. He doesn't rule for His own gain at the expense of His subjects. He doesn't parade around the city showing off His own glory while His people are languishing in the slums. Jesus is a king who dismounted his high horse. He left his glorious throne and became a servant for us. He entered into our suffering, into our temptation, took it all upon himself, and then he rose from the dead and is exalted back onto the throne. But this time, now he leads his brothers and sisters back there with him. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So that not one molecule, not one cell in our body, nor one planet or galaxy in the entire universe is outside of His control. And He takes all of that power, all of that authority, and wields it for the weak and the broken among us. And He ushers us into His kingdom of light. So let's now go to Him in prayer and surrender our hearts to Him, trusting that He will care for us. God, You are marvelous. All authority is Yours because You created all things by the power of Your Word. You speak and it is. And that should cause us to tremble because our very lives are dependent upon You speaking us into existence. You uphold us by the power of Your Word. Every moment, every breath, Every word we speak can only happen because of Your great power and authority. So help us to surrender it all to You. Say, use us as You will. God, use Redemption City Church as You will. Use us to proclaim Your Word, to lift Jesus high, to show the world how righteous, how holy our King is. And may You use that exaltation, these lives transformed by surrendering to the King to draw more into the kingdom of holiness and the kingdom of righteousness. Help us, God, to seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and You will provide all things that we need. Help us, God, to see that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and therefore we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things that you have commanded us. God, use this next season of Redemption City Church to magnify our King's glorious name. Amen.